America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. The House stumbles towards the shutdown. Russell Brand in the dock. And is Ibram Kendi a racist? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brandon Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National U podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Donors Trust and the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD... One of the great advantages of being a journalist is everything's new. There's something new and interesting happening all the time, the unexpected. But then a a downside to being a a political journalist occasionally is you feel as though you've seen it millions of times before. And this this is how I feel about the latest looming uh, government shutdown where you have chaos in the House, narrowly held by Republicans. You have some Republican bomb throwers, some of whom are sincere and very well-intentioned, some of whom uh, maybe not, who are making life miserable for their speaker and make it likely that there'll be no deal with a uh, Democrat-held Senate and a Democratic president before we go into a shutdown the last a couple days or a week and Republicans get blamed for it, and then finally they realize we can't do this anymore, and the Speaker makes a deal upsetting his uh, firebrand backbenchers who may or may not dump him. Should I I be feeling a a sense of deja vu and ennui here, or something different going on? There's nothing different going on. This is the same old suicide impulse in a small Republican majority. you know, we've we've been here before, and and Republicans should have learned. In my opinion, Republicans should learn the lessons that they never win this fight. <laughs> they they never win it. People don't like the shutdown. Uh, they don't like the parks being closed. They don't like the delays and pay for federal employees. Republicans always get blamed for it. Correctly, um, it is a total. You know. It is based on this like foolish idea that Republicans are secretly a commanding majority in the country, and they're just waiting for the elected Republicans who make up a very narrow majority in the House to show some great gesture of courage, and then we're all going to, this giant silent majority is going to rally to them to do what? I don't know. Um you know, just Republicans don't have the votes in the Senate and they, they don't have the White House. So they don't control the whole government. Uh, they can shut it down and they'll get blamed for it again. It's, we've seen it before and there's nothing, there's just nothing new about this. And the thing that was new was what happened previously under McCarthy, which is Republicans somehow got together, passed a continuing, you know, a budget uh, and we're able to extract very minor things in the end, but 
they were able to get something for for their votes in the House when they united. Um, when they're determined to just do this kamikaze pilot thing, they're going to get nothing or or less than nothing. Yeah, there's there's one shutdown as briefly during the Trump administration when Chuck Schumer for some reason did this, you know, and he was like, "We're going to shut down government." I forget over what. And it was very brief, but they got blamed. The Democrats got blamed, and they had to stand down. But that's because they were the ones saying, okay, we're fine with doing this. And every other instance has been Republicans saying they're fine with doing this. And, of course, if you say you're fine with doing it, you're going to be the one that gets blamed. And the first thing that happens is you know, they get an enormous chain and a padlock and put it around the Washington Monument. And the news stories about these disappointed tourists who – traveled there from St. Louis and can't get to the Washington Monument because Republicans are so mean. I mean it's really, you, you can write the, the, the script uh, for it. And Maddie, I understand, obviously, the impulse to, to try to control government spending. But a, another element that's very frustrating about this is it's not true of, of, of all the uh, uh, firebrands. Some, some of them were consistent in complaining about this even dur- during the Trump years. But you get unified control of, of government, and you, you can set more or less, and I'm exaggerating, you know, the, the level of government spending, whatever you want. And that's when everyone decides, ah, oh, we don't really care that much about the debt and government spending again. But then, you know, you lose the White House, you lose the Senate, and you win a narrow majority in the House. And that's when you're going to finally win the government, win the, the battle over over government spending. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't. And I think you're absolutely right that nobody really remembers why the government was shut down. They just remember who did it. I feel sorry for McCarthy. You know, he, he seemed optimistic heading into the vote on Thursday. Um, and then obviously he was let down by these five members of the House Freedom Caucus who just dragged their feet. And I think he was right when he, after the vote, he said, like, look, this is just a, a new concept of individuals that just want to basically burn the whole place down. And it doesn't work. And he's right. It doesn't work. Politics is the art of the possible. They only have a four-vote four majority in the House. Um, both the Senate and the White House are controlled by Democrats. They... You know, they, they said they were going to, Republicans promised they were going to keep a, keep Democrat spending in check. They've, they've done that to the extent that they can, but they really just aren't in a position to be directing policy. And this is, this is going to be a reality check. And, you know, one way or another, I, they're, they're going to have to find a way out of this. Yeah, so Charlie, another common feature of the shutdown fights is Yuval Levin writes a very, uh, long and extremely thoughtful and subtle analysis of what's going on for, for us. And that, that happened yesterday. And one point he, he uh, made, and I believe he made this about the speaker's fight too, is you, you have this certain segment of Republicans. And Yuval says, you know, some of them just generally sincerely believe the leadership is too powerful and that's checking their ability to legislate. And, and they have a point. But there are other people that, that just want to create the image that they're really, really strong, you know, and, and they're, they're going to in, insist on their point of view and can stop things from happening. And then at the end, have, are happy to have zero influence on, on what happens and to, to, be, to appear really weak. And like, look what Kevin McCarthy did and we couldn't stop him. I can remember... Back in was it 2013, the Ted Cruz shutdown being shouted at by our readers in the comments and by email and on Twitter because I just couldn't understand what it was that they were trying to do. Day in, day out, I would write this shutdown is not going to work because Barack Obama is not going to give up. Obamacare, his signature achievement, he's going to win the shutdown. And he did. Now, it didn't cost the Republicans in the way that many analysts suggested or hoped that it would, but they didn't get rid of Obamacare. That was never going to happen. But the people who shouted at me about this used this term, GOPE, which I'd never heard before, GOP establishment, as if that... And not the fact that at that point in 2013, Republicans only held the House, was the problem. And we see the same thing now. This prevailing belief, and I think this is related to the ongoing appeal of Donald Trump, despite the obvious electoral realities, the ongoing belief 
that the problem here is a lack of willingness to fight, a lack of care, a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of interest. Failure theater, the perfidy of Kevin McCarthy, or anyone else, for that matter. And for as long as the rank and file believe that, we will get these shutdowns. Because there will always be someone to stand up and say, the problem here is not that we underperformed in 2022, maybe we should look into why. It's not that we lost both seats in Georgia and both seats in Arizona, and we lost in Pennsylvania. It's that this person, whoever it happens to be at that point, doesn't want to win, doesn't actually have any interest in advancing conservative ideas or checking spending or what you will. That's the core issue here, is that there is at the moment still a constituency for what is a false narrative about the political setup. Democrats run the Senate. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Like it, dislike it, be indifferent towards it. It doesn't matter. That's the fact. They're not going to cave. You might around the edges take a little, but you're not going to take much. And you're certainly not going to take anything in line with the rhetoric that will flower up here. So I, I think it's inevitable while we have a base that has not realized yet that the way that you affect real change is to win, is to work out why you're losing, why you don't have a Senate majority, why you don't have the White House, why you don't have a bigger majority in the House, and fix it. Then you win. And as you said, we've seen this. This is not actually one of those circumstances in which the rules are immutably different for Republicans than for Democrats. Yes, Republicans face headwinds from the media that the Democrats don't. But Chuck Schumer learned that it is really difficult, as she pointed out, Rich, to take on the president when the president has the power of the executive office and can play games to make you look like the problem. Until Republicans realize that we're going to get more and more of these and they're going to keep failing and nothing is going to improve. MBD, extra question to you. In a month's time, Kevin McCarthy will still be Speaker of the House. Yes or no? Yes. Um, nobody else wants it. Um, nobody else can probably get it with this coalition. So even if it has to be, you know, another 20 votes or something to prove it, this is what the political laws of physics are for now. McCarthy is speaker. Medicare's. Uh, yeah, I, th I think he will be just, I can't think of anybody else. Charlie. Yeah, he's good at it relative to his circumstances. <laughs> he that. wants to be it, clearly. How many rounds did he go? 14, 15, without dropping out. And whether or not the rabble-rousers in the party like to admit it, and I consider myself one of those when it comes to Kevin McCarthy, because he doesn't really believe in anything. Kevin McCarthy is a good person to be Speaker of the House because he is mostly agnostic. He is able to corral different factions and represent different factions. So I think, yes, he'll stay there. So I'm going to make it unanimous, which is always kind of uh, dangerous. It means he probably be out next week, for all we know. But I, I agree with everything that's been said. There's no alternative. He, he is good at this and uh, in, in very, very difficult circumstances, which makes him maybe seem like he's not so good at it. But the, the, it's more on the circumstances than on McCarthy. So I believe in a month's time he'll still be speaker. You know, this will his his store of political capital will be diminished. Maybe it means next time uh, he'll he'll go. Although it probably still won't be an alternative next time. But I believe uh, with everyone else, agree with everyone else that he'll still be speaker. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor. This episode, Donors Trust. Cancel culture doesn't just affect comedians and commentators anymore. It also affects everyday hardworking Americans. How so? It derails their charitable giving. Take Jeannie's story, for example. Jeannie did her charitable giving through one of the big national giving account providers. That is until, without a clear reason, it refused to send her charitable dollars to a conservative nonprofit. She shares her story 
this way, quote, I'm a conservative. I believe America is great despite her imperfections and that capitalism brings great good to society rather than government, she said. Earlier this year, I continued to see the need to support conservative organizations, so I requested another gift from my donor-advised fund, and it was rejected, she added. That is why I moved to Donors Trust. Jeannie wanted a donor-advised fund that shares her conservative principles and found that in Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund committed to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. Do you worry about cancel culture getting in the way of your charitable goals? Do you simply want a principal partner help you support causes close to your heart? If so, consider opening a donor advised fund with Donors Trust. For more information on how Donors Trust can help you with your charitable giving, visit www.donorstrust.org/nr to receive a free copy of their donor prospectus. That's www.donorstrust.org/nr. We know lots of people at Donors Trust, a really important organization. So I urge all of you. To check it out. So, Maddie, we have a, a throwback to the heights of the, the Me Too era with a celebrity being um, accused of various forms of sexual misconduct. The comedian and sometime actor Russell Brand, he has uh, become a, a kind of a heterodox figure. You wouldn't call him a conservative, you know, in, in, in our sense, but uh, there are people on the right who are friendly with him and have uh, interviewed him or been interviewed by him. I think these, these allegations um, are, are false or at least politically motivated. What do you make of it? So all the things that usually apply in a Me Too witch hunt apply in this case as well. So we have the hypocrisy of Russell Brand's detractors, people who were quite happy to cheer him on um, and think his debauchery hilarious and not stop to consider whether his conquests were actually having a good time, who are now turning on him and, and clutching their perils. There's the, the partisan nature of, of some of the attacks, those who hate him because of his uh, his views, his political views, and are, were looking for an excuse and delighted to find one um, to have him cancelled. And then also there's some illiberal measures taken against him, so the, the demonetization of him with YouTube and the there was a, a UK member of parliament, or actually a member of the government, writing to social media companies. Just the very disturbing overreach. But the, the difference in this case is that buried underneath all of that are the allegations themselves, which are, in fact, credible. And they're, they're credible for two reasons. First, because the, um, the allegers have evidence. There's, there's text messages with Russell Brand. Um, there's uh, you know, uh, medical records from a rape crisis centre on the day that one of the attacks was alleged to have happened. Um, and, and the second reason it's credible is because of who Brand was at that time by his own very, very public admission. Now, I say credible. Credible is obviously not the same as proven beyond reasonable doubt. But it's not hugely surprising to me that somebody who lived his life this way and treated women as playthings and was very open about that uh, might have crossed the line. And I think one of the reasons it's not a good idea to have this dividing line between what we consider acceptable and what we consider unacceptable be only the law is because sometimes what's illegal and what's legal don't actually look that dissimilar. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about painful, degrading sexual encounters where the word stop is thought but not necessarily uttered. And of course the law recognises a difference but I'm not sure that culture really really should. I mean, I think even if he's his best possible defense at this point is that he's not a rapist. He's just another rich, powerful man who used women as playthings and got away with it for years. So forgive me if I'm not donating to his defense fund and sort of getting mm -hmm. worked up about it. I, I really I, I think he's in a mess of his own making. So to just to, to underline it, in, in contrast, say, to the the Brett Kavanaugh allegation. Brett Kavanaugh, totally upstanding guy. Russell Brand, by his own admission, not. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh allegation, no serious contemporaneous uh, evidence or, or hard contemporaneous uh, evidence, whereas here you have written uh, text messages and you know, uh, awfully, you know, a visit to, to a, a clinic after an alleged rape. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think there's just, there's, th this is not a hatchet job 
uh, piece of journalism. So the, the Times, it was a very serious thing. It took years to compile. They talked to hundreds of people. Um, like I say, you know, it's um, that could, of course, it's only half the story. Russell Brand has the other half. Perhaps it would fall apart in a court of law, which, which I think, honestly, is where at least some of the allegations are headed. Um, but I think, you know, we, we don't, we, we are part of the, the court of public opinion and we're entitled to our suspicions. Journalists are entitled to their investigations. And uh, and Mr Brand does not really have much of a reputation to lose in the first place, frankly. So, Charlie, all that said, something that's very discomforting is, you know, YouTube instantly demonetizes him based on the allegations. Now, the allegations may be credible, but they, you know, we, it hasn't been tried in a court of law. He hasn't confessed anything. It hasn't been established. It won't always be Russell Brand. That's why we have both formal and informal systems in place, presumptions in place, expectations in place to preserve the presumption of innocence. Now, I must say, I think Maddie makes a great deal of sense. I don't know why I know this, because I've not paid that much attention to him. But the first thing I thought when these allegations broke was, well, Russell Brand did spend quite a lot of time in rehab for sex addiction. It is not as if this allegation had been leveled against someone who was known for their chastity or moral rectitude. It does seem possible that the allegations are true. But that doesn't mean you skip the step. You can have your suspicions, as Maddie says. You might be correct in those suspicions. Certainly, those suspicions are justified. But if you are in a position of influence, it is important, I think, as a cultural norm to hold fire. YouTube is in a position of influence. YouTube is not only a participant in the public square, it's a private participant, it can do as it wishes, but it is a participant in the public square. But it is linked to all manner of monetization that is used by people who are a lot less wealthy than Russell Brand. And I would not want to see a situation in which these tools that people use, in a voluntary sense, I'll say once again, this is not a matter for government regulation, but I would not want to see a situation in which these tools that people use to disseminate their views across the internet became habitually places where mere accusations were sufficient to warrant a suspension or an expulsion. I wouldn't want to see that for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it is illiberal and would quickly spread further across our society to the detriment of many innocent people. And the second reason is that it would incentivize false claims. Clearly, if you know that you can get somebody kicked off YouTube or their channel demonetized, or that this is the norm in tech, we will see lies, because those lies will be rewarded. So I think those who have looked at this and said either, well, I think this is true, which is a defensible position, or, well, I don't like Russell Brand or what he said about this or that, and therefore have stayed quiet about the illiberal behavior of YouTube and others, ought to think twice, because what we're dealing with here is about much more than one guy. MBD. So it troubled me when I read the Sunday Times story and immediately said that these accusations had come between 2006 and 2013. Um, because I knew immediately, I, I knew almost immediately that there would be a controversy over the timing. Okay. Why now? Why is it coming out 10 years later? Um, and clearly it has to do with the turn in Russell Brand's, you know, politics and his 
personal brand that he's had over the last couple of years. And in fact, the Times story confirmed this and said that it indicated that among the women who came forward in their investigation, um, Brand's new social media direction and video channel were was a factor inspiring several women to speak out. So I have a question about that fact, which is, okay, are they speaking out now because they believe, do they refuse to speak out before because they believed Russell Brand was a protected figure in the media, uh, they wouldn't get a hearing, and they wouldn't receive justice, and that they've come out now because they calculated correctly that Times and other powerful media institutions would dedicate serious resources to a story like this now, and they're getting their justice. Or, more discomfortingly, does their, you know, dalliance with brand in their own minds become worse and feel less consensual now that he is no longer charmed in, in the spotlight? You know, I, I agree with everything Maddie said about how, you know, the culture maybe shouldn't treat uh, certain behaviors as... Um, moral or as acceptable just because they're over the line. They're, they're just within the legal lines. I totally agree with that, but I, I was troubled by the, the, the actual reporting that politics was driving these accusations. And there was a very smart piece by Mary Harrington at unheard.com basically saying that like over and over again in our culture, we see that, uh, women, even even women themselves, wait until there is a political verdict on the man before they come forward with their accusations. They subordinate the the accusation of sexual assault or abuse to politics, and that's really depressing uh, when you think about it. That's it's it's a really shocking thing, and. Um, it makes you wonder who, of course, who has impunity now then. Um, so anyway, I, I find the whole story sad. I mean, I, I, I find the, the description of Brand's behavior is totally plausible. Um, it's sad. I mean, the guy looks like, I mean, the guy presents himself as like a combination of Mephistopheles and Don Lord Juan. Byron. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's totally... Um, bizarre, and um, so yeah, I'm not shocked, but I am shocked at how forthright people are that the politics played a role in bringing it out now because it's just it's just sad. It makes me sad for other women who are, who, um, you know, clearly this implies that if you are a liberal in good standing, you better you know it's better off not to accuse you until you're you're no longer that. So, Maddie, a more open-ended exit question than usual. There's obviously this contradiction in progressive thought where they are, as Heather McDonald and, and others have pointed out, the new Puritans, on the other hand, they're totally appalled like, by the behavior of someone like Mike Pence, who doesn't want to get even you know, within a million miles of a situation that would lead to anything that a woman would consider inappropriate. So he'll, he'll only have dinner you know, when his, with other women. His wife is, was, is with him. So they're totally appalled by that. Is, uh, is, is this contradiction ever going to be resolved? No, it's not going to be resolved. Um, I think there's just going to continually be uh, impulse to find scapegoats. And I, I don't really think Russell Brand is necessarily a scapegoat because I think he's at least morally guilty, if not criminally guilty, of uh, of these types of offences. But they, it, it's in a way just finding the, the monsters that they've obviously helped create. It it helps them from ever having to like properly reconcile this because it's the one thing that they can agree on is that rape is bad. Um, so, no, I, I, don't, I don't see a resolution. Charlie. I broadly agree with that. 
I think that a great deal of progressive moral opinion is contingent upon the actor involved. MBD. Yeah, it's it's very difficult because like you know, progressives are so tedious about other uh, other forms of moral signaling, you know, about about uh Abjuring even the appearance of impropriety or, or when it comes to racism or sexism, etc. It's so, but it creates these contradictions, right? Where, um, you know, it's very easy for, um, like male colleagues to go out to dinner together and, um, for it to appear like a business meeting, whereas a male superior and a female junior going out to dinner, the waiter might begin treating them like they're on a date and the whole atmosphere seems spoiled or hazardous uh, immediately because of it. And I, I just don't think their expansive vision of total uh, gender egalitarianism and um, I, I just don't think it's compatible with human nature the way the way they'd like it to be. I associate myself entirely with Maddie's remarks. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor, the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. You could be the next visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy at the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. The College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder invite applicants for the position of visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy for the academic year 2024-2025. They're seeking a highly visible individual who's deeply engaged in either the analytical scholarship or practice of conservative thinking and policy making or both. Thus, applications are welcome from the academic, policy, military, and media communities, among others. The visiting scholar will continue a tradition of fostering intellectual diversity on the Boulder campus through the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. To learn more and apply, please visit colorado.edu slash center slash Benson slash CTP search. That's Colorado dot edu slash center slash benson slash ctp search i warn you i myself might apply for this uh, position which sounds uh, much better than covering the 2024 presidential race as it is developing but we have a lot of high caliber listeners here on this podcast so i'm sure we actually do really have um, a lot of potential candidates for this listening so if you're interested Please, please apply. So, Charlie, speaking of the left making its decisions based on the people and personalities involved in their politics, we have Ibram Kendi, who obviously has become a, a massive star, a cottage industry, and it may be that he, he now exemplifies the old line about, uh, you know, er everything starts out as a cause and then becomes a business and then becomes a racket. We're learning that his anti-racism center is has been poorly run, that it uh, perhaps has been misusing uh, its millions, because, of course, millions has been uh, have been showered on Kendi and uh, other anti-racism gurus and consultants and Boston University is investigating. So I guess the question is, do you find this uh, more or less or equally hilarious as the Hunter Biden Second Amendment defense in his gun case? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I have thought from the beginning and continue to think that Ibram X. Kendi is one of the great thinkers of our time and perhaps <laughs> the most upstanding and logically consistent system. This guy is a snake oil salesman and always has been. He's sufficiently embarrassing to have been exposed by Ezra Klein, of all people, on Klein's podcast within about three minutes of going on there. It is no great surprise that his center has been run like this. I think that he has here been hoist by his own petard because he has generated a non-falsifiable theory of racism that anything 
that leads to, in his opinion, a, an outcome that does not make the country less racist or that hurts minorities is racism, irrespective of intent, irrespective of extenuating circumstances, irrespective of the detail. Well, what's happened with Ibram X. Kendi? Ibram X. Kendi has been given tens of millions of dollars to, in his words, solve the great racial problems of our time. And he's blown it. Through his own mismanagement and hubris, he has presided over a center at Boston University that is now suffering mass layoffs that has, per those affected, and I love this phrase, inflicted employment violence on his fellow <laughs> travelers, and that has failed to produce the work that it was going to produce. Now, I would, of course, in a vacuum, never think to call the man a racist for this. I might have some other names for him. But under his own theory, that is racism. That money was earmarked to improve conditions for non-white people in the United States, to take aim at racism, to mitigate and diminish the racial problems of our era, to produce research that would look into racism and its causes and help government reduce its incidence. And it didn't. It didn't. It did the opposite. It wasted the money. There is an opportunity cost there. And I don't see how under his own theory, which he happily applies to government spending in other areas or to tax policy, I don't see how that doesn't mean that he has presided over a racist policy and is therefore a racist. And I think that's very funny. Not because I think racism is funny, but because I think his definition of racism is funny. Is absurd, in fact. Is a crock. And as you mentioned toward the end of your question, is a racket. Is a racket to pull in people who feel guilty about things they've never done, to empty their wallets, and then to fill their heads with excuses when nothing comes of it. He's hoist on his own petard, and yes, it's funny. Yeah, Matty, uh, obviously the, the definition of racism is, is so all-encompassing, uh, but also incredibly malleable. So soft on crime policies that make neighborhoods where African-Americans uh, live more dangerous is not racism that leads to more killings of young black men. That, that's, that's not racism. Taking you know community centers from black communities and, and putting migrants in there that uh, the African-American residents of this communities opposed because they think it's going to be a drain on a resource and increased disorder. That's, that's racism. Couldn't possibly be racism. And of course, uh, Ibram can be mismanaging or perhaps worse, who knows, this center such that the, the cause of anti-racism is sent, uh, set back and African-American employees are laid off could never, ever be possibly racism either. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of suspicious with, with these types of, of people who, uh, get themselves into a very comfortable position in charge of lots of money. Where is the motivation to actually solve the problem that you're supposed to be solving? There was a, a case in Scotland, a scandal where the Scottish National Party um, proposed, I think shortly after Brexit, that they were going to have another Scottish independence referendum and they raised nearly a million pounds for this. And actually discovered with time it was it was quite useful to just continually kick the can down the road it, the the promise of this thing on the horizon the scottish this the, the second independence referendum stopped them from being accountable uh, for all the problems that they were already under their remit they they could just talk about this endlessly and then some time went by and, and some people who'd given money to this campaign said, hey, where did our money go? And it ended up being a criminal investigation and it caused a great scandal for the former uh, leader of the party, Nicola Sturgeon. 
anyway, the point is, I think that, like I say, people get comfortable uh, being the heroes of their narrative. They get comfortable with the idea that they're going to solve racism or they're going to deliver some great political goal. And it suits them to do absolutely no work. And sometimes that's corruption that's going on behind the scenes, people lining their own pockets. Sometimes it's just sheer incompetence. Uh, time will tell which which is the case with this particular instance, but it, I don't think it's at all surprising that this is what happened. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that's a great point. What incentive do you have if, if you didn't really have to do anything to, to get this money in particular, and there's no evidence, you know, it may be just, just he's a terrible manager, right? I mean, what he's been quote unquote good at is is writing books. It doesn't necessarily translate to being able to manage, you know, tens of millions of dollars or whatever it is and run an organization. But MBD, I mean, this cause is more, it's not that you can't be a sincere person who thinks the, the United States is entirely uh, thoroughly racist and capitalism is terrible, all that. Uh, obviously, they're sincere and honest people who believe this, but kind of this, this means of fundraising, and it goes back 20, 30 years to Jesse Jackson, uh, blackmailing, in effect, major corporations to Pepsi and others to, to give him uh, money for his causes that, you know, makes him, um, g- gives him all sorts of resources that uh, can make his life more comfortable and give, gives him influence because he can hire a, a bunch of people and have them on the payroll to Black Lives Matter, you know, which was also near criminal the way they mis- mismanaged the, the money to this. Yeah, I mean, this. Uh, there's something really, there's a big indictment of America's intellectual culture uh, lurking in the rise and fall of Ibram X. Kendi. Um, and I feel like we need to give um, guys like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, who have been apoplectic and uh, about the, the rise of Kendi's reputation as a thinker and scholar, writer, for years now, I, I think they deserve credit for being basically the only two guys saying the emperor has no clothes. Um, I, th- I think, uh, you know, maybe Colin a lot of Hughes co- as well should. Yeah. Yes. Col- 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 Wilford Riley. Right. Riley. I mean, the, so you have like a handful of black scholars who, who basically argued that Ibram X. Kennedy's rise itself was a form of racism because the guy was so obviously stupid and uh, ill-equipped to carry on a conversation about ideas with anyone and yet was lifted up given a a huge contract to write for the Atlantic given, you know, had um, a bestseller that I, I, I don't know if anyone read it, but you know, beyond his definition of racism, which was so expansive and, you know, uh, useless in any practical sense. Um, you know, and yet this guy won a MacArthur genius grant and national book award. And, um, you know, the, the, there was this line, much mocked line that George Bush had about the, um, the soft racism of, of diminished soft bigotry, the soft yeah. bigotry of low expectations. I mean, is there, is there a more emblematic figure of that than Ibram X. Kendi? That basically, like, this guy who can, you know, barely hold himself together is held out as the leading anti-racist theorist? And listen, you know, anti-racism, you know, is an important force in this country, right? If you have a multiracial country, I mean, my, my basically my definition of racism uh, to counter Kendi's would be anything that tears at based on race that tears at individual or social cohesion based on race, right? That hurts the so tends towards the destruction of the social fabric uh, between races who share a polity together. Now, is that, is that overly malleable? Because that that doesn't require like hatred or intentionality, right? Your definition. Um. Well, see, the thing is, though, that people in this in a real social fabric, if they share a moral code, they understand they have shared ideas of what malice is. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of I'm I'm presuming that people have a kind of shared idea of where you know it doesn't yeah, mean they don't never just 
Agre- you don't. That's the problem. Oh, it's very it- easy to turn tax cuts into what you just described in the right person's. No, no, no I, I, I totally understand. Right. I'm, I'm obviously assuming a whole host of moral definitions undergirding it. Um, you know about what what a healthy social fabric actually looks like. Right? I don't know. I, MD. I think this is a play. The the candy money has to go somewhere, and now it's going to come to you. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Um, but. In, in any case, um, his rise was disgusting, and it was—it's it, just sad. Like it, he was—it it kind of—it showed a his rise itself was a kind of racist event. Like it was—it showed a pa- a way that white people patronized mm-hmm. black people for unserious thought and credited them for mediocre mediocre work and i'm not surprised that hughes and riley and lowry and mcwhorter were apoplectic because they're all of them are more interesting than ibram x kendi all of them have more to contribute than him and yet ibram x kendi was gifted with like nine figures yeah and basically like you know hacked uh white guilt into riches right like sort Mm -hmm. of uh, you know, even the book "How to Be an Anti-Racist" by Ibram X. Kendi, it kind of straddles the line between social commentary and self-help and self-improvement mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a way that is gimcrack and cheapskate. And um, yeah. so, I don't know. Yeah. This is a, a total indictment of Americans' intellectual culture. So I, I've not read uh, either "How to Be Anti-Racist." I, I've read in it and have not read his first book, which Stamped, I believe, was, was the title. But there, there's a very, very serious right-wing intellectual who, you know, d- did not have a, is not squishy on this stuff at, at all, told me that actually Stamped is impressive. Um, I, I have no idea. I, I agree with you guys. Like The Ezra Klein interview was just devastating for the fact that Ezra wasn't going out to demolish the guy, right? It's just that he couldn't, he couldn't answer basic questions Cogently, cogently. I mean, the incoherence of the whole worldview is just um, exposed um, almost inadvertently by Ezra. Although he was, you know, skeptical of kind of the extreme claims made by Kendi. But X, a question to you, Charlie. We've asked this about trans. Have we reached peak anti-racism? Yes or no? Yes, but that's not necessarily cause for optimism because i think slightly sub-peak anti-racism is now the norm the norm the baseline yeah sorry i paused there not because i couldn't find the word norm but i heard myself say anti and i don't say anti i say anti so clearly i'm losing my (laughs) identity (laughs) maddie uh so i think that the peak was George Floyd and then all the conditions of the pandemic that made people erratic and and crazy. Um, but that anything could happen. We could have another world event where people have a lot of time on their hands and we could have another George Floyd. I hope not. But um, there, there could be a, another peak coming. But I think for now it's, uh, it's trending down. I'm deep. Uh, I think it's trending up because over over time, with little peaks and valleys as noise along the way, because as America becomes more diverse, the contest over how to define Asian and Hispanic minorities as a, as an extension of the the African and American experience against white supremacy, or as something else, becomes politically so momentous and um so i think there's going to be a much larger push to um uh make anti-racism and white supremacy the 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 basis of america's civic understanding mm-hmm. and, and to try okay. to and to try to corral or colonize asian and hispanic immigrants into that self-understanding uh, okay, so what what, what what Charlie and Maddie are saying maybe is is a peak that we're flattened from or, or come come down a little bit. You you just you think that's kind of statistical noise. I think that's I think that's statistical noise. I think I think we're headed for something really 
wild in the next two decades. Like it's just mm. going to keep going up. All right. I don't just scout that possibility, but um, at least for, for now, I'm more in the Charlie Maddie camp with their caveats. You know, the, the we're, we're not heavily off peak per um, re Charlie's point, And it, it could, it could go higher given events, given um, Maddie's caveat there. I I'd be, agree with both of those, but I think at least for the moment, we are, we are off peak so-called anti-racism with that. Let me do a quick plug for NR plus. Let me just skip to the main point, which is that it's a really important way to support our valuable journalism. We need people to pay a little bit for what we do. Not a lot. We have great first-time deals running any given moment. But if you appreciate what we do, if you're a devoted listener and a devoted reader, just please considering poning up a, a little bit. It's it's uh, really uh, crucial to us. And if you sign up, the meter paywall goes away. A lot of annoyances go away. The meter paywall goes away. Obviously, the ads, if you sign up and log in, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them go away. And then also, if you want to, you know, we have a robust commenting community that you can join. You can also be invited to exclusive calls and events. Uh, Charlie MBD and I do a um, informal call once a month with, with folks, anyone who wants to be part of the call. We just open forum just immediately. What questions do you got or what comments do you, do you got? And we, we bat things around and it's a lot of fun. And we have uh, uh, other, other things of that nature and we're coming up with more. So it's a great community. So anyway, please sign up if you haven't already with that. Let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD. You're going to play some golf at a fake Irish facility. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just laughing because uh, there's a link style course in New Jersey called Bally Owen, uh, which is kind of obviously imitating Irish place names. Um, and it's a, it's a links course and we're actually looking at the weather and it looks like it's going to be a monsoon with a lot of wind. So it, it will be just as fake as going home uh, <laughs> can be. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's with uh, a lot of my uh, in-laws and a couple of other friends. And uh, maybe it's the last of the season for us. And, Maddie, you have fashioned for yourself a home studio. Yes. Uh, so living in New York, there's a lot of street noise. And this morning, I just didn't want to be competing with a traffic warning outside, shouting her head off and uh, lots of lots of traffic. And so I thought, well, there's only one quiet part of my apartment, and that is the closet. It's pretty small, but that's, that's how much NR listeners mean to me. I took one for the team. Of course, it's not without its faults because um, listeners will not know this because of the stellar work of our producer, but uh, I have cut out a couple of points and I think that might be because where I am. But uh, yeah, I'm in I'm in a closet. So hello from so, here. So this makeshift studio is, is you crafted this morning. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, crafted by, by crafted. into it is probably more accurate. Uh, so the, the, yeah, this item could be... This yeah, item could be I walked into my closet this 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 morning. Instead, you've you've dressed it up as as fashioning a, yeah. a makeshift studio. Well, yes, I have I have a a chair and my bedside table, and I, I will say it's extremely hot in here. So <laughs> I I'm looking <laughs> forward to looking forward to getting out. So if you could just speed up the rest of the podcast, <laughs> great. the sacrifices you make, Charlie. I finally found a show from my childhood that my kids will latch onto. I tried DuckTales. Didn't work. And then even worse, they gravitated toward the new one from, I think, about 2017. Then I tried Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. No, something about the animation, I guess, just doesn't resonate. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the original 1980s series, this is... A great new love of my children. So great, in fact, that I have been dragooned into going as a turtle to our Halloween party. Whoa. My costume arrived a couple of days ago. I tried it on. I look as silly as you might imagine, <laughs> partly because I have a beard. It somewhat ruins the illusion. But it is pretty cool. It comes with swords and nunchucks and a shell, uh, not to mention the full... Right, we, we should uh, compare pictures and, and have listeners uh, post them and have listeners decide who, who rocked their costume more. MBD with his colonial American <laughs> costume at uh, Megan Kelly's July 4th party or your Ninja Turtle 
costume. I'm not like entirely convinced that's a fair trade, but I may be game <laughs> So I, uh, as I mentioned many times before, I, I try not to kill non-threatening insects. I, I kind of like uh, spiders. I'm not afraid of spiders, but there, there was a spider uh, in the, the, the bathroom the other day that really, really freaked us out. Um, my, my wife has been, uh, she thought she saw, you know, unusual spider in the basement. And I was like, is it a brown recluse spider? Which are really like, they, they, they are uh, kind of dangerous things. I mean, you don't want to get bitten by one of these. They're not really, uh, they're more, you find them more, uh, I think, in Charlie's neck of the woods than, than in the Northeast. But you never know, it could, one could come in a box that's been shipped or whatever. So I had that in the back of my mind. And this, this spider was like, it was the fastest spider I've ever encountered. So I, I, I trapped it with the with the cup the way I usually do, or glass, and then I was going to slide the paper underneath. And this thing was like so supple and fast. I just like in a little tiny, tiny crack to get the paper underneath. It just took off and escaped again. And it was dodging, and it was like Barry Sanders, you know, moving. And and it finally got under this little crack uh, under a cabinet. And um, my wife's like, what, was it brown recluse? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And, and I didn't get a look at it, it was a good look at it, it was so fast. And I looked up brown recluse. I was gonna see, I'm gonna see how brown recluse, recluse moves. And I looked it up and they're like, extremely fast. Like, oh my God, it could have been brown recluse. So then I, I went medieval, you know, I got the, the natural predator of uh, spiders, a vacuum cleaner out to try to get in this crack. And then I was like, brown recluses, you know, apple cider vinegar kills them instantly. So I was like splashing apple cider vinegar in there and then I finally was like you know there's I, I don't know how deep this crack is I don't know where it is so I was like uh, I, I'm just going to tape up this crack so for this spider it was going to be like an a bad ending of a Edgar Allan Poe story. It's going to be entombed alive, you know, in, in this crack. So um, I felt a little guilty, you know, and, and every time the last day or so I've walked past, past this crack with tape on it, I was like, ah, you know, I wonder, wonder what's happening with that spider, how long he or she's going to survive. And then lo and behold, um, last night, the spider was back out. And then I could see it was black, you know, it wasn't that big. There's no way it was a brown recluse. So it was uh, dis dispatched humanely to our garage. So the, the spider drama ended happily for all involved with that. It's time for our editor's picks. MBD! What's your pick? Uh, my pick is, once again, the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This one is with uh, Douglas Brunt, uh, who, you know, uh, through uh, his spouse, Megan Kelly, and he's the author of a really great book on Rudolf Diesel, the inventor of the diesel engine, which is uh, just a kind of, I'm only in the first couple chapters, but it is a, an incredible story of huge technological and political import. Um, and uh, it's also got a little bit of the spirit of a whodunit in the book, and I, mm -hmm. I can't recommend the book or the podcast enough. Yeah, I've always wanted to come up with a, an an idea like Doug had. You know, something that's a story that has great drama that's underappreciated. You know, that hasn't been written about yeah. multiple times, and you can really dig into I'm and, and master. And, yeah, I'm so. <laughs> I'm a little behind in my uh, Charlie listening, so I'm still on the, the Neil Neil Ferguson one, which I, which I think you recommended last, last week. week. Yeah, yeah. MBD, yeah. So, Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? So, I didn't know we were allowed to pick podcasts. Uh, now I know that, I will pick this episode of The Editors, which mm -hmm, has just mm -hmm. been really great. Uh, but in seriousness, Armand White had a great piece on the new Tom Wolfe documentary, Radical Wolfe, and it's actually rare that you read Armand and he's uh, favourable, in his review, but this one is, and uh, I, I look forward to watching the documentary. Try. It isn't my pick, but I was shocked by Armand White too, writing about Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone, because he's such a contrarian. Everything I read of his, he's a contrarian. And he said, no, Jan Wenner is just a sexist, racist idiot. And I thought, wow, well, he must be. If Armand White thinks <laughs> he really must be. My pick is Jim Garrity's morning jolt about John Fetterman saying, does he really want to be a senator? Should he be a senator? He doesn't seem to want to do any part of the job. And Jim pointed something out that I hadn't thought of, which is the defining characteristic of John Fetterman is how he dresses. That's it. 
That's his contribution. That's all they ever talk about when they write about him in these profiles. They never say he's done sterling work on the revitalization of the canal treaties. He hasn't. He doesn't do anything. Leave aside his medical issues. If you go all the way back to the various positions that he's held and you look at the profiles of him as Jim Garrity does, all they talk about is that he wears shorts and a t-shirt or shorts and a hoodie. This does seem to be his one weird trick. And I think it's a totally fair question from Jim. Why is he a senator? If it is such a struggle for him, if he doesn't enjoy it, if he thinks that all the people in there are full of it and that they can't talk about anything serious and that they do horrendous and oppressive things like ask him to wear a tie, what is it about that job that attracted him? It's a great question without an obvious answer. So my pick is Jeff Blair's post on Ibram Kindy, uh, it's it looks like it's Blair, but listeners know it's Blair. But he's just such a great harsh writer. Our, our best writers are harsh, but uh, he, he is he is lively and and harsh and extremely readable. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and a rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Donors Trust and the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.